just the narrative structure of the Bible itself differentiates between, you know, the quote-unquote demons and spirits involved with medical or, you know, medical, physical, and mental illness and evil, sin, sin. Clear narrative difference. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Prime. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Raghi Girgis. He is the Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Girgis is served as the Director of Center of Prevention and Evaluation in New York. He's also the author of countless publications, including a new book on Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry. Dr. Girgis, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me, Andy. Now, you've got degrees and credentials that are a mile long, uh, but where did all this start? Why psychiatry? I really appreciate the question. I actually didn't know anything about medicine uh, for for probably most of my life, certainly my childhood. No one in my family is a physician. My father's an engineer. My mother's a librarian. I got to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started majoring in engineering, and I did fine, but wasn't that interesting to me. I eventually just decided to major in biology and pursue medicine again, not knowing anything about medicine. I graduated from college. I, I, I did get into medical school, which was, you know, fantastic and lucky, especially for someone who really, you know, hadn't planned on going into medical school for the majority of my life. 
I got to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh. I loved medical school. Uh, I still did not know what I wanted to do, though. So I finished my first year of medical school. I began uh, a summer kind of experience with a geriatric psychiatrist working on Alzheimer's disease, and that sparked my interest in psychiatry. To me, dementia seemed to be a really severe kind of condition. It was the type of thing that I could really see myself devoting my life to. Fast forward to my third year in medical school, I was on my psychiatry rotation, which I believe was my third or fourth, so just just about halfway through the year, I was on a schizophrenia inpatient unit, again, in Pittsburgh, and I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. You know, I, I saw what schizophrenia was like, absolutely devastating. You know, I, I could see my, I, at that time, I, I could definitely see myself spending my whole life working with people with schizophrenia, and I haven't looked back. And so that's how I got into, into psychiatry, and in particular, schizophrenia, which is what I do. I, I, I focus on on psychosis and schizophrenia after medical school. And I also just, you know, to people who aren't in the medical field, one might not realize that the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine is, is a great school of medicine for, for many fields, in particular for psychiatry. So I was very fortunate that I ended up at a university that really was an elite uh, or had an elite department of psychiatry. So I think that that played a big role. Either way, I graduated medical school and I came to Columbia here in New York for my residency, top psychiatry program. I, you know, I got into research right away. I, I came here because I knew one of the reasons I came here was because I knew I wanted to work with the chairman, Jeffrey Lieberman, who's, you know, a, legendary schizophrenia researcher, and I finished my residency. I pursued research in schizophrenia and psychosis from the very beginning. I then completed my fellowship, and you know now I'm faculty, and my whole life is about clinical research. I'm a 100% clinical researcher. I see patients as part of my research, but I do research on psychosis, primarily trying to understand the neurobiology and like pathophysiology, like cause of psychotic disorders, especially schizophrenia, using tools such as brain imaging, and then ultimately using these tools to develop treatments, better treatments, and also potentially you know, potentially preventative strategies or treatments for psychotic disorders. I know that we could probably talk at, at length this entire podcast interview uh, about the pandemic and its effects on those that uh, face mental illness. But but what are some of the psychiatric concerns coming out of this pandemic? Thanks for asking. There's been a lot written on that. I think people didn't pay as much attention to that at the beginning, but now the mental health kind of sequelae are what people are calling that the, the second pandemic, uh, you know, one doesn't need to be a psychiatrist or mental health clinician of any sort to understand how isolated, lonely, anxious, fearful people have felt during this pandemic and how that's going to affect them afterwards. Uh, there are a lot of other, obviously, effects, the loss of income, the unemployment, the experience with severe illness, death, all those types of things will, again, naturally affect people generally adversely. And so that's what we're dealing with. And, you know, and we do deal with it. Fortunately, a lot of, you know, there's, there's been a, now, especially, you know, during the latter half of the pandemic, 
people paid a lot more attention to this. And, you know, we're doing what we can. We're learning more about relationships between COVID and mental health and in particular, in, in particular direct and also indirect relationships between COVID and, and mental illness. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's very good and kind of what we're dealing with now. How has this pandemic changed the way that um, people in your field um, are approaching their work? From a from a process perspective, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're asking, but from a process perspective, you know, everyone's working from home, of course. I think that that obviously is, has changed things the most. Uh, it's obviously also changed what we discuss with our patients in therapy, and, and then, like we said, it, it it has obviously affected, you know, affected people directly in terms of their anxiety levels, depression levels, whatnot. Uh, Otherwise, you know, we're, we're continuing to move forward with our, with our research, whether we do clinical trials or brain imaging or whatever. The government, the, the main funder of mental illness, of, uh, mental illness research, of course, is the National Institute of Mental Health, like the government, NIH, National Institute of Mental Health, which is one of the institutes of the NIH. And they put a lot of money into COVID research. And so that might be the most direct way that the pandemic has affected people. There's a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily have done research on relationships between infectious diseases and mental illness are now spending a lot more time on it because the NIMH is prioritizing it, which is a good thing. I think that's probably one of, you know, those are probably the main ways. And then the latter is one of the most kind of direct ways that it's affected how people are, are doing their work. Well, as I said in the opener, uh, you have a new book out on Satan, demons, and psychiatry. Uh, this book explores the mental illness presented within the Bible. You wrote, I would suggest that believing that serious mental illness is primarily um, in related to moral weakness rather than the biological in nature and, and no different than high blood pressure, diabetes, or cancer um, does, not, does a disservice to individuals with serious mental illness and, and their families. Um, what inspired you to write this book? Thanks for the question. I, and I think it's a good one. That's important. Obviously, that's an important question for anyone who writes a book that they they hope will help people and, you know, be read and have some sort of impact. And it's about something serious like mental illness. You know, most simply, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I'm, I'm Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox. I grew up in the church. My family is quite observant, and fortunately, I also come from a family that understands, you know, mental illness and, and biology and those types of things. And so, most simply, you know, a long time ago, when I first began a training in psychiatry, my father basically came to me and told me that I should write a book along these lines. Fast forward about a decade or so. And I became more established and I had a little bit more free time. Like I didn't have to moonlight as much, et cetera. So I had a little more free time on the weekends and whatnot to read a little bit more about theology and you know, mental illness in ancient times and what, and how mental illness was understood in ancient times, whatnot. 
to be able so that I could feel a little more comfortable writing a book like this. Obviously, I'm still a novice. I'm an amateur when it comes to especially theology and whatnot, but I felt I knew enough to write a book like this, you know, focusing on my understanding as a psychiatrist and and then also focusing, as I as I tried to do in the book, on, you know, one, of course, you know, psychiatry and, you know, my training, and then two, just on what the Bible says. So I really tried to keep everything that I wrote in the book, you know, it internally consistent with the Bible. So obviously it reflects, you know, a post-enlightenment narrative, meaning medicine, you know, science, my training. But my, I really tried to make everything that I said and all of my interpretations internally consistent with the Bible. So not using any sources, not using church fathers, not using other writings. I really just tried to keep my interpretations, theories, consistent, my perspective consistent with the Bible itself. Well, one of the brilliant approaches to the book, um, I think, meets people where they are as you're trying to help them uh, navigate a, a difficult conversation, which is uh, you navigate some of the passages of the Bible that historically have been viewed only through a theological lens, um, such as, you know, Saul's murderous crusade against David or those really unique passages about wizards, witches, and mediums. Um, what, what led you to this particular approach of, you know, um, I guess, catering to or journeying alongside familiar passages in the Bible as a way to talk about mental health? Yeah, just like you said, I thought that that would be, I thought that that would be just hopefully more acceptable to people and that that would, like you said, meet people kind of, you know, where they are. I also just don't have enough theological kind of understanding or training and no type, no training, no theological training to go much beyond that. But I thought that would, you know, be relatively palatable and approachable to people. I ran some of kind of, you know, my ideas and some of what I wrote in the book uh, you know, without the context of the stories to friends of mine, people in my church, other, other friends. And, you know, they didn't accept the ideas very well. So, you know, I thought I really had to steep anything I wrote uh, deeply within Bible stories and biblical context. And I think that's really important. And it's it's also important, and, I, and you know, I, I try to share with people that, you know, for those of us who are Christian, me being an Orthodox Christian, or I being an Orthodox Christian, you know, really, you know, really believe in the Bible, what the Bible says, and, you know, we're, we're called Orthodox for reason. You know, we believe, we believe God created the world, and God created nature and the laws of nature. The, nature is governed by the laws of physics, and the laws of physics govern all biological and chemical processes, and and that's you know, that's important to us. And that suggests that, you know, science, you know, medicine, of course, of course, being part of science, wouldn't necessarily have to be inconsistent with what we read in the Bible. And that was kind of my perspective going in. You're not uh, afraid to categorize or diagnose some biblical figures with modern psychiatry terms, such as 
Jonah was a, a narcissist. You <laughs> wrote, uh, people afflicted mm-hmm. with narcissism usually have very little insight into them, uh, which cause substantial social and occupational dysfunction. I'm chuckling because I preached about Jonah this last week and uh, actually used your book as a, as a resource for navigating <laughs> some of the things that were, you know, complex things that are going on beyond the surface. Uh, why do you think Christians have not thought about biblical figures in our modern day vernacular of mental illness. I say that, um, you know, as if it's the case, because, you know, I rarely hear anybody talking about biblical figures with, you know, modern day vernacular terms of mental illness, like narcissism. Great question. This goes back to kind of what you said before, what you asked before, one about my motivation for writing the book, but also two about how, let's see, you said that Yes, you, you mentioned how sometimes people equate mental illness with bad behavior. So basically that, uh, to take even a step further, more proximal, more proximal to the problem, is I think a lot of people just don't have much exposure to mental illness, even though virtually everyone has someone with severe mental illness in their family or some sort of mental illness, Alzheimer's disease, autism, schizophrenia, et cetera, severe depression. You know, a lot of people don't realize it or are not exposed to it. For, for whatever reason. So I think a lot of people just simply don't have, you know, much experience with mental illness. They really don't know what it is, number one. Uh, number two, then along the lines of what you said, a lot of people, maybe because they don't have much experience and exposure, experience with or exposure to mental illness or for other reasons, equate mental illness with bad behavior. And a lot of that might be, a lot of that might be, you know, due to, the media and our culture and whatnot who tends to, you know, sometimes equate mental illness with bad behavior, which is obviously false. You know, psychiatry and psychiatrists do tend to treat some sort of, you know, sorts of severe, you know, bad behavior, whether it's, you know, of, of many, of many types, but there is a fine line between bad behavior and mental illness. And maybe that more than anything else is hard for people to, reconcile. Uh, and if we were to do that, as well as give people exposure to mental illness, I think they would naturally read some of the passages in the Bible, such as those which I included in my book, as being about mental illness rather than, rather than anything else, the same way that they now read the stories of the people who had seizures or who were mute and were described as being demons possessed as just having physical, quote unquote, physical or medical illnesses. Are you interested in theological education, but not ready or able to commit to a fully master of divinity degree? BSK now offers two certificates that focus on general ministry training. The Exploring Ministry Certificates, Levels 1 and 2, will be available beginning this fall, including course options such as Introduction to Pastoral Care, The Black Church in America, and an Invitation to Christian Theology. These certificates provide options for your area of interest. BSK certificates only require students to take three courses, and certificates count towards the Master of Divinity. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about these certificates, visit bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. 
we are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So let's talk about demons and possession. Um, These stories appear across all four Gospels. Uh, You wrote... There must be a way to understand why such language was used if this story is not actually about demon possession or exorcism, as we should understand them today. Take us a little deeper uh, into this concept. Well, absolutely. I did, in the book, I, I did a pretty complete narrative analysis of the Bible, of every time a word like spirit or demon or, or any, any word along those lines was used. And it's, it's actually very clear in the Bible that the way the authors of the Bible, or Jesus himself, but the authors of the Bible described mental illness, or what I would suggest was mental illness, was very similar to how they described what we all believe was physical illness, like the seizures and the munis and whatnot. So that's very clear. The language is actually very consistent between those two sorts of, those two sorts of, you know, issues or topics in the Bible and very different than how the authors of the Bible described sin or evil or Satan. There's a clear difference. So just the narrative structure of the Bible itself differentiates between, you know, the quote-unquote demons and spirits involved with medical or, you know, medical, physical, and mental illness and evil, sin, Satan. Clear narrative difference. They didn't have the words that we have now or the understanding that we have now to use any other language. Everything to them was about spirits and demons, not to Jesus. Of course, Jesus knew exactly what was going on, but he couldn't use words like schizophrenia or epilepsy or, you know, genetics or whatever. That just didn't exist. He had to use the language of the time. But again, even with that understanding, and as and all the details are in the book, I, every single time any of those types of words were used, it's very clear that there is a difference between how any sort of medical illness, including mental illness, was described compared to sin, Satan, evil, those types of things. Uh, to to go on from this point, what I what I what I brought up in the book is also ha- the question of how Satan works. For example, does Satan have the power to control people or just tempt people, influence? Can he control or tempt? And the question is, and this is obviously central to the concept of demon possession and in this case mental illness also, but also important to, you know, sin and salvation and, and whatnot. And I, again, I, I, 
I went through the Bible many times, and I could only find two examples in the whole Bible of Satan having any potential influence on creation of, not not just influence, rather control of creation in any way. And those two are actually quite unique. And I think then would very much suggest that the demon possession of, you know, for example, the, the, um, the, the person at the, in the story of the gathering demoniac or the person in the story of the, the exorcism at the synagogue in Capernaum were not possessed by Satan or sin or demon, but had mental illness. So I imagine most people know the story of Job, but part of the story of Job involved Satan asking permission from God to afflict Job with physical illness. So this was the one time in the whole Bible where Satan was able to have any sort of control over creation. And, you know, people, I'm sure, you know, the listeners of your podcast have a range of understanding or belief about how how literally the Bible can be taken. If we take it completely literally, that was the only time besides one other one I'll talk about, when Satan had control over creation. And that was limited. He actually had to ask God first. God did it specifically to prove how holy and righteous Job was. And even in that case, you'll remember, Satan asked if he could affect Job's mind and control his mind. And God said no. God clearly said, no, that is not allowed. That is not how it works. And ultimately, the reason we know it, or we understand, is free will, which is fundamental to salvation through Jesus Christ. Without free will, there's no salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the point of creation. That's the point of creating mankind. There's no salvation without free will. God didn't create us to just force us to, to love him. He, he created us to freely come to him and to love him. So the only other time Satan had any control of creation, again, I'm sure that your listeners, you know, have a wide range of opinions about how literally to take the Bible. But the other time would be in the Garden of Eden with Satan's control of the serpent uh, tempting, tempting Eve. And that's the only other time. And even in that case, the, the serpent or Satan only tempted Eve, did not control Eve. Pretend, taking the Bible completely literally did control the serpent. And that's it. Those are the only exceptions. So it's it, it wouldn't even necessarily be consistent with the rest of the Bible to understand the exorcisms, for example, the two that I mentioned, the gathering, the exorcism, the gathering demoniac, and the exorcism at the synagogue in Capernaum as being exorcisms. So, you know, as a clinical psychiatrist um, as a person who does research in this area, but also as a person of faith, like what is, what is the intersection of, of theological understanding um, of demonology um, of, you know, the existence of um, Satan? Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you intersect those concepts Um not only, I guess, from a professional clinical standpoint, but also from a personal theological standpoint. Thank you. 
Well, demons, you know, from a so so Satan and and evil and whatnot uh, from a theological from a theological standpoint and sin and whatnot exist and and you know and temptation exists and we obtain salvation through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and that's fine. Uh, I think the intersection is that they you know they're meant to even not so much intersect. Please correct me if I'm misunderstanding your question, but that they, they shouldn't intersect too much with, with mental illness, which is not spiritual uh, in terms of causes of disease. Obviously, there are spiritual components to therapy. If, if someone is religious, obviously, we would include it in therapy, and that can be very helpful for, for people who believe in it. But in terms of understanding severe mental illness as being you know, demon possession or thinking that exorcisms can cure or treat or have a role in the treatment of a mental illness is not really accepted or ascribed to by, you know, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of mental health clinicians. In chapter nine, I think that is the chapter about the the exorcism at the exorcism in the synagogue at Capernaum. I describe maybe more fully what you might be talking about, this kind of gray area between between you know, demon possession and, and mental illness. And I describe how, uh, you know, sometimes there are people who say that they can perform exorcisms and they treat people who, you know, have demon possession or, or other sorts of problems as psychiatrists. And you, you can see these on YouTube or any other service that has videos. Uh, as psychiatrists, we, we, you know, we see that as, as something else. The people who are saying that they are exorcists or doing exorcism, exorcisms, maybe they may simply be misinformed or misunderstand. They, they may also kind of just be confidence artists uh, or tricksters, those types of things. And the, the, the people who, for, you know, the, the patients or the people who are being exercised or whatnot, you know, they may also just be in on the, in on the, the game, the, the, the con, or they may have, you know, serious problems and they just may not know the difference. And uh, a lot of these people will be, they, they can be suggestible and, they may think that they really are possessed by a demon and some sort of exorcism and, you know, pressing hard on them with a cross or throwing water on them or whatever will, will solve everything. And sometimes they have what we call a flight into health. And, and I mean, that's fine. It, it's never lasting. There's no such thing, of course. And usually these people just struggle mightily and need a lot of help and have a lot of other problems besides what people might see on in videos on YouTube, if that's where they're watching it, uh, or what is observed by the the practitioners of exorcisms who probably don't have as much exposure to these people as as you know their family might or their mental health clinician might, and and you probably know so a lot of people know this. And the, the, the churches that do still technically do exorcisms, you know, 
by far the, the majority of people who supposedly need exorcisms are ruled out for exorcisms because they're understood to have mental illness and whatnot. Again, even the people who do the exorcisms know that and could tell you that. You know, for for some people, uh, this might be the place theologically where they're at a crossroads in this conversation. Um, you know, they have an awareness of mental illness. They maybe have never thought about um, things in the biblical sense, uh, looking at demon possession and mental health as an intersection uh, and using terminology to describe it with, you know, as medical issues or other phenomenon. So how do you help? bridge that connection for some people you know again that modern day understanding of mental illness and their particular biblical view of what they seeing happen within the scriptures how, how do you help them bridge that connection that gets at the crux of the book and why i wrote the book it's very it, it's hard to bridge that connection uh very hard despite everything i said and despite whatever sort of you know scientific or biblical biblical arguments i use so what you said at the beginning is one way, telling them that mental illness is no different than, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure really isn't, it just needs to be treated. That's one way uh, that usually doesn't work, but it helps. Other ways are some of the other things that I wrote in the book about how, uh, about, and I, I wrote them down here, but about how a mental illness was, you know, a mental illness in biblical times presented or was phenomenologically very similar to mental illness nowadays. If you read through the the Bible, you see many examples of of people acting in ways in which we would under, which we would understand as being consistent with mental illness, and which are very similar to how people with mental illness might behave or how they what they might experience today. Uh, for example, going even through the chapters of my book, King David feigns mental illness, and if if one were to read the book, they would get a complete kind of description of how he feigned mental illness and how people responded to it, showing that King David understood mental illness in his case psychosis. I, I in, in a few short paragraphs, I basically listed a lot of the great Old Testament prophets who clearly had depression or were suicidal, Jeremiah, Moses, Naomi. I think I wrote about another one and I'm blanking on a person. Maybe was it Elijah? Maybe Elijah. And 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 then, like you mentioned, Jonah and King Saul, uh, chapter three. I I wrote more about Moses and and his severe despondency, and again later on his suicidality. Uh, that's these are these are all the tools that we have. Unfortunately, ultimately, like with religion, like with everything else, like with like with people who don't eat a very healthy diet and, and develop difficulties with high blood pressure or heart disease, whatnot, ultimately people have to come to the realization themselves. You know, people are free to do as they want and believe what they want. And, you know, whether people even, you know, most people, for example, know that, you know, it's good to, you know, control one's portions, eat a even you know average amount of salt, limit one's cholesterol saturated fat intake, not have too many trans fatty trans fatty acids, etc. You know everyone knows that for the most part. You know that doesn't that doesn't prevent a lot of people from uh, eating too much of those things and and you know 
probably contributing pretty greatly to poorer health later on in life. And, and, you know, ultimately all you can do is, all we can do is try our hardest and share with them the science and, and what we know and all these examples from the Bible in this case about mental illness and hope that they come to their own realization before it's too late. Do you think that our, our theological, I'm speaking our, as in broadly the church, our theological views of the stories of the Bible, such as demon possession, um, prevent us from having a healthier understanding of, of mental health issues? Let me think about that for just a couple of seconds. Hmm. I find, and I'll ask you also your thoughts. I want to hear your thoughts. But I find that I, I maybe a little, but not not too much. And the reason why is because even though, when at least when I hear sermons, whether Orthodox or otherwise, I, I you know I rarely or I'm not sure if I've ever heard someone speak about you know, any of the stories in my books and in my book rather and, and, and mention mental illness. But I do find that the church leaders, pastors, priests, you know, deacons, whatever, tend to be very sophisticated about mental illness. And I know that a lot of, you know, the church congregation and laity do depend a lot on church leaders such as yourself and I think those people, again, are usually tend to be very sophisticated about mental illness and usually understand when there is a mental, uh, a problem with mental illness and, and suggest, you know, psychiatric or, or, other, or other sort of treatment for the person. So I actually don't think too much of a problem, but I, I would appreciate your thoughts about that also. Well, I, I certainly think it depends on the tradition. Uh, I think it, it depends on one's views uh, and interpretation of scripture. I think that often leads folks to their assumptions about these stories, their assumptions about the uh, modern day experience of mental health issues. And depending on one's view of those things, uh, and again, that's not a... Um, you know, blanket perspective from certain traditions. Uh, I think it certainly might limit not only their understanding, but their response to the mental illness they see in their community and certainly uh, within their church. When you hear and I've experienced this uh, traveling all over the world of churches that respond in a very unhealthy way to somebody that's clearly experiencing uh, some significant mental health issues. Uh, and it's only viewed through the theological lens and not the medical lens as if those things can't cohabitate together. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And, and you're right. Outside of America, things may be a lot worse. I, I know less about churches outside of America. So, so you definitely know much more than I do about that. Well, I mean, I, I, think... I would say experience it. Uh, you know, a lot here in this country too. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to categorize um, certainly certain faith traditions or certain 
denominations uh, or types of of people. Um, but I think if if people were honest, <laughs> which you're in that field, uh, I, I find more more and more these days. Not a lot of people want to be honest, especially about difficult issues. Um, you know, their perspective into these things really vary within our within our congregations, which which kind of leads me to kind of flipping this to look at from a congregational standpoint. What what are some healthy ways you've seen local churches develop a, a stronger understanding and response to mental health issues? Sure, and let me just ask, clarify. You mean honest? By honest, you mean honest, like with themselves and other people about feeling like having like feeling depressed or feeling anxious and needing to seek mental health treatment is that what you're referring to and that, is that what you mean by honest uh, maybe uh, i think people more they're they're honestly their views on these things um you know people might be uh-huh. scared that they might be viewed as as bigoted for their particular views or they might be viewed as uh, heretical and unfaithful to scriptures if they if they uh, don't necessarily take an, a literal interpretation of of these passages. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So stigma and then maybe reverse stigma in terms of yeah wh- whether you believe or not that mental illness it you know is 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 consistent with with the Bible and Christianity. I see what you say. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Hundred yeah. percent. So what has been done? So, I mean, you know, I'm, my, my universe isn't that large. I, I've, I've been at Columbia for 15, 16 years. You know, I know I have a, I have a, a colleague and friend who, who's amazing. And he, he's, he's a researcher also, a psychiatry, psych, psychiatrist researcher. And he's been going out into the community, going out into the community, uh, using the, you know, the, the, the social network of the church community to get out the word about mental illness, get out the word of, of mental illness, decrease stigma. And I mean, and that's kind of one example of how people have worked to, you know, I think that stigma is kind of more what you're talking about, decrease stigma, church community, make things more normal, allow people to be more honest about their feelings about mental illness, and allow people to kind of discuss it openly, like you said, in a safe space, which hopefully the church should always be a safe space for this type of thing. So that's, that's one example I can think of. What's your advice for congregational leaders that don't know where to start and building resources and a culture of openness within their church for those facing mental illness? I'm, I'm biased. I'll go back to what I said. And maybe again, this goes to what you, what you just brought up about how people can't be too honest about what they really think uh, about, you know, maybe some of these stories about mental, mental illness and stigma and whatnot. But I do genuinely think uh, that it would be helpful if they were to teach some of these stories, like the stories that we just discussed and that are in my book as being at least in part about mental illness. I think that would do a a, a, a lot. I think it would do a lot to publicly say, like, listen, you know, these, you know, the, the Gadarin demoniac could very well have been about mental illness. There's no reason why it wasn't, couldn't have been about mental illness. That's consistent with, you know, biblical theology from, I think, most, you know, most Christian perspectives. I think they have, I'd love to see that. 
I'm sure some people are already doing that. I just like to see more of it. Certainly in my church. I mean, that, that would never happen in my church. And I love my church. Don't get me wrong. As you examine these challenges from a, a clinical professional standing, uh, along with holding the sacred text in your hand, you know, how has it personally shaped your spiritual journey? It has uh, strengthened it. It's it's enhanced my interest in theology. It's enhanced my understanding of just you know my own church, my own church, my own beliefs, uh, my understanding of the differences between you know the the different churches and the the different perspectives on on theology, like between you know Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, and you know, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodoxy, all those types of things. It's helped me, but you know, uh, you know, it's helped me always refocus on on what's important. Never forget the story of the gospel, which is very relevant now. You know, depending on you know what tradition you belong to, either a week and a half after Easter or two and a half weeks before Easter, that it's all about. Or the gospel is about. You know. The, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and sin and salvation. And that's really kind of, you know, that's the fundamental, uh, that's, that's, that's fundamental. That, that is the gospel. That's the fundamental story of, of, of the Bible. What's the best way for folks uh, to stay connected with your work? Thanks. Well, I don't have social media or anything like that, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. But I, uh, it'd be great if people could, you know, read or buy the book. It's available on Amazon or any other large uh, bookseller or distributor such as that. I'm pretty reachable. I have a relatively, you know, unique name. Although, again, I, I'm, I'm absolutely blown away that you have or had a friend whose first name was Roggy. I've never met someone with that first name, which is incredible. But uh, my name is generally unique enough so that it's pretty easy to find me and find my email address and email me. I'm happy to, you know, have discussions with people. People have done that already, and I always enjoy having discussions with people. I've I've actually had discussions with some people who are also on who have been on your podcast. It's always super exciting. That's probably the best way. Awesome. Well, folks, we want to encourage you to go out and purchase on Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry wherever books are sold. Uh, Dr. Gerges, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Um, We are grateful for your brilliant work in helping us see and understand our neighbor as they face the challenges of mental illness. Thank you, Andy. I really appreciate being on your show. I think you're doing a a great job with the podcast. I've listened to your podcast, listened to a number of the shows. They're really great. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. 
Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and Maccabee School of Theology's Doctorate and Ministry Program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.